Amen. Today's parable uh, is one of those really great hard parables. Uh, Tim Keller uh, often says in many places, in many ways, uh, he says this, that you have to hear the bad news first uh, before you can understand the good news. Uh, If you reject the bad news, he says, you'll never be able to get into the good news. And what he's talking about is is that there is this whole thing around the gospel that is bad news. Uh, We are all sinners. We're all people who break the peace that God created. We're all people that shatter the image of God with one another. We're all a people that live in a world that's unjust and is decaying itself. Like, that's, that's some bad news, right? And that the, there's this calling of, oh, we lack that. And, and what Tim Keller's saying is, if you reject that part of the, the, the news, the bad news part, You'll never really fully be able to embrace the richness of the grace and mercy. What grace and mercy do you need if we all just pretend that we're great and that the world is good? Uh, It's hard to really, you know, grab hold of that good news. Uh, Today's parable is filled, it's kind of like a bad news parable, if you will. Uh, It's about life and death. It's about saving and cursing. It's about an eternity gained and then eternity lost. Uh, It's about the fragility of life, like you're going to be thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to die one day. Like, if, if, if Matt's story didn't get you thinking about that, this will. Um, it's about the, the call of repentance, which I think is, that's such bad news to us that we would have to somehow change uh, what story we participate in. But also it's the story that, about how truly short that window of responding to repentance really is. Uh, and that this life is what you get. And that And so this parable really is about if you reject those realities, you'll always struggle to be astonished by the grace of God. Uh, So that's what this this parable is about. I think it's so important for our day today. It's important for us as a body. And so it's uh, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And the man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, the rich man said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Then Abraham says back to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is God's word. It's pretty great. 
Heavy? Was I, was I overselling the heaviness? Underselling it? One really quick thing before we go super far into this parable. It is a parable. I don't think Jesus is trying to give us keys and, and like language of like, oh, this is like the picture of heaven and hell. Like there's this, you know, fiery things that's, that are happening. It's really not him trying to do that. Like, let me give you the secret secret on the end of time. And there's going to be Abraham talking between people. It's a parable and it's a story. A little later on, we'll talk about how much of this is Jesus even borrowing and adapting from, from other cultures. But it is a story about repentance and life. It's about this life. It's about what's happening now. And as you remember, when he talked about parables, he tells these to shake us out of either things that we understood that we forgot or things that we've never really understood before. And so it's about this rich man who is so seen. He's famous you know, in this town. He's heard. He's appreciated. He's kind of the center of economic life, of gossip, of influence. Uh, he's the center of all storytelling, you know, like the really, really rich people. Uh, we have really rich people here. We know who they are. We know what they own, you know, like all of those things. Uh, he was the kind of person that others were nervous to be around. You know, I remember when I went to Disneyland uh, with Nora when she was a little kid, and, and we wa waited in line to meet this super famous person, and we finally got ushered into this room, and there were all these other people around, and, and I was so nervous to meet Mickey Mouse. It was like, it was terror. I've like felt it, like the way they built it all up in that little room. Have you ever done that? It's wild. It's like, how did they, like, there's something about the environment that just tells you. I know, it's crazy. So this rich man was that kind of person, a local celebrity. The rich man was noisy. People saw him. People knew him. Lazarus is invisible. Nobody sees him. Uh, nobody's concerned about him. Uh, he cries out for help. He's there at the gate of this rich, rich man, and he's ignored, and he's unheard. His fate is the fate of all the poor and the marginalized, the sick, the outcast. He doesn't matter, and he's told through all the words and unspoken words, he shouldn't matter. He shouldn't matter to anybody. He's, a, he's an insignificant. Uh, probably when he dies, he's buried in, a, in an unmarked, unnamed tomb. Like, just does not matter. Uh, the poor uh, are among us, though. They're unseen, they're, they're in our midst, but we don't recognize them, we don't acknowledge them. Uh, for us in our city, we consider the poor a problem that we get to solve. Uh, they're a campaign issue that, that kind of comes up every two, three, four years, uh, and then we all come up with some opinions on how to solve this problem. Uh, but as names and as faces, as people with stories, they're completely and utterly nameless. Uh, several uh, years ago, now like a long time ago, uh, when I began following Jesus in all earnestness uh, in this small town, Shawnee, America, in Oklahoma, uh, I became, me and my friends, friends with this man named Terry. He had uh, some injuries to his head. He was uh, in his 50s, but he was just the sweetest, kindest person. He played harmonica. Like, he taught us so much about really cool music, uh, like, you know, and Gene Autry and all these great, you know, Oklahoman heroes. Uh, but one of the things that he did is he began inviting us into these meals where he and his friends, who were the poor and the unseen in the city, gathered together to eat. 
And then we became participants in kind of sharing those meals with us. Terry was great. He went to every missional community, you know, that he could. And he would call us and get dry, uh, rides to, to be there. But at these meals that he and his friends basically hosted, uh, there was this time where my friend Matt would stand up and say, hey, does anybody have any, you know, prayer requests? And everyone would be silent, you know. And he's like, well, we, you know, we'd love to pray for each other. We can all pray for each other. Nobody would say anything. And then finally, my friend Terry would raise his hand. He's like, well, I've got one unspoken. And then everybody else is like, well, I got, put three unspoken for me. Put four, I've got four unspoken. Like they, then it was, became this outdueling of how many unspoken prayer requests we have. And we used to laugh and chuckle about that. Me and my friends, we still do. Uh, but the reason, as we reflected on, why did they just say, I have an unspoken request? Because they knew intuitively, in the way society worked, even within the church, that they were the unspoken about. So why would their prayer matter? Why would they need to have a specific request? Because everyone else is just faceless and nameless. We're the poor, the, the marginalized. Who would care? Who would want to know them? Who would want to even say their name in prayer? It's just easier to say, we pray for all the unspokens. Lazarus, it's so interesting. He is the only named character in any parable, in any gospel that Jesus told. Lazarus, is the, that's the only name given to any character. The good Samaritan who cares for, all, for this guy so well, he doesn't get a name. The father who runs to the son, he doesn't get a name. The shrewd manager, the masters, nobody is given a name except for this beggar who has wounds that dogs come and lick. He's the one that has a name. It's pretty, pretty phenomenal. Naming matters. When someone says your name, they're invoking the reality that you have a personhood, that you have a heritage, that you had a mom and a dad, like you were born and there were some people around you who said, let's name him Brad. Or let's name her Ashley or Jordan. I could do all the names now. Let's name him Debbie. Ah, even a person that I just met, right? Like the name is just, the, the mark of it's so incredible. Uh, we're not numbers. We're people that have been given a name. It means that you have a friend. It means that you have meaning. You have purpose when someone says your name. In literature, often the unnamed characters uh, they're, they're intentionally so, uh, like Cormac McCarthy, his characters are never named. If you ever read The Road or watched The Road, it's just the man and the boy. And the reason that, they, that in literature they unname people, it's so that you can be invited into the story. You can kind of see yourself of, oh, I'm the hero there. You know, like that's pretty sweet. Uh, or in the enemies and the villains, you say, those are my enemies. Those are my villains. That's what the power of the unnamed but often in, in literature, when we name someone, when someone is given a name, it's to tell us that, that there's someone else, there's an other. It's an invitation to finding and recognizing and to being confronted with this awareness that there is somebody else there. Jesus wants the unseen to be seen. He wants the unnamed to find a name. Uh, I want to ask you just real quickly, who are the invisible people in our city? Who are the invisible, the unnamed, the unseen? Kids who don't have friends at school? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, the unpart. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Kids eating alone at the table, cafeteria, unseen, ignored. Yeah. Stay-at-home moms. Stay moms, unseen, because they're at home. Nobody sees them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Completely unnamed. Yeah. Even politicians, they don't bring them up and say, hey, this is my friend Jerry. Everybody meet Jerry. It's just like, oh, no, there's a statistic. Here's a bunch of numbers. Yeah. It is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who else is invisible in our city? I think when you have a certain, like, age group of your city, like 36 and mm-hmm. like LA, anybody that's not within the majority age group in yeah. I think it's happening out lately with rundown housing, mostly it's much older that's there. We used to call those shut ins or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Particularly the elderly. Yeah, to your point. Yeah, the people that are just, yeah, they've aged out of being the center of our society, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. You could have like people who uh, maybe they're you know in the right age group and they have a job and everything, but they uh, like they don't have family here, so they don't have like so many people don't have friends or community here. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're working from home, you're just trying to supply yourself with friends. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those working alone in isolation. Those who move here without friends or relationships, yeah. But then also just like the, the sick and the people that we put in hospitals, and we're like, oh, they're way over there. Or, uh, the people receiving recovery from addiction, uh, we're just like, oh, let's not think about that. That's, you know, like we're, we've got a glamorous thing that we've got to do here. Uh, we've, got, we've got high-rise buildings to, to live in and to build. Uh, the, 
yeah, the mentally ill, right? The, the, the physically disabled. It's like, no, we, we, let's, that, that doesn't fit our picture of what it means to be an Angelino, right? And they're unnamed. But Jesus wants the unseen uh, to become seen. It's what he does in his kingdom is he takes, uh, in this story in particular, the invisible man is given a name and given a place of heritage and prominence. He gets invited into the very center of this story, right? Uh, I want us to remember even the echoes of Jesus's first sermon where he says in Luke chapter four, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to who? The poor, Uh, Jesus makes in his whole kingdom, his whole message, the message of the gospel is making unseen people, insignificant, unworthy people, visible and at the very center of his whole kingdom. He proclaims good news to the captives, to the sick, to the wounded, to the hurting. And he says, it's just so good for you to be seen by the creator of the universe. And that's true for you. You might even, I know that like some of those stories you guys are sharing, like you feel invisible sometimes. And yet Christ names you. Uh, In Ephesians chapter three, he talks about uh, when he's praying, Paul's praying, he says, you know, I bow my knee before the father from whom all people are named. Like that our identity, our naming comes directly from the creator of the universe who calls himself Father, or even if you just think about the very end of the whole story, where it describes that that God, the one worthy Jesus, will unroll this scroll, and it has on it the names of people who belong to life, an eternal, abundant life. And your name, if you're in Christ, your name is on that list. And what will happen is, is in that day, there will be this sort of ushering into this new heavens and new earth, and God will just be standing there, ushering in billions of people, naming us one by one. Like, it will not be like your high school graduation where you're like, well, of course I'm supposed to get this. I showed up. It will be like this unbelievable moment where you just see names and you hear names of languages you've never even heard of, and then suddenly it will be your name. And you will, get, you will walk into the kingdom. Why? Because the one who is worthy decided to descend into this earth to make you worthy and to put your name on that list. The un, he longs to make those who are unspoken about, spoken about, and that includes you. And Jesus is looking for people to participate in that kingdom with him. And for him, it begins with making the invisible very visible, from turning the unnamed into named people. And you don't have to be a rich person to learn someone's name. Uh, You don't have to be skilled to hear a story. I think one of the dilemmas we have in our culture is that we think that there's, you know, there's the, the 30 billionaires, and it's their job, right? Which there's some, you know, validity there. They have a lot of the resources in the world. But you don't have to have the treasures of this world to take someone from invisible to visible. You just have to learn a name and speak it out loud. You don't have to be skilled to hear somebody's story. You don't have to be an expert in housing policy or macroeconomics to remind someone that they're a human, that they're a child of God. But the story is not just about Lazarus. It's also about this rich man. This story is the third story in a row that Jesus begins, the third parable in a row that he begins with, there was a certain man. First, there's a certain man, he had two sons. Then there was a certain man who was rich and he had a manager who wasn't good. 
And then there's this story. There was a certain man who was rich and wore purple and lived a life of luxury. There was this man who's so rich that he overlooks the poor. And he, and he walks by him. He must know him because he can see him. So it's not like he never saw him in the story, right? Because in eternity, he can see there's Lazarus next to Abraham, which is kind of a trip. Like, I don't know. Abraham being in here is pretty great little tidbit that we won't get into too much today. But he's there and he's suffering. And this Greek word, Hades, which is this, there's a whole mythology that the Greeks had about just this burning inferno. And there he is suffering. And shockingly, he calls out and he says, hey, could Lazarus come and give me just like a drip of water from his finger? This guy that no one wanted to touch because of his sores, now he wants him just to give him a, just a drink of water. And then Lazarus is willing you know, but Abraham says, hey, that's not possible because there's a gap that's just so big. And he says, remember, you had a life. You had a life and you had good things. You had treasures. And what did you do with it? Well, here you are now, right? Like that's the whole story. There's such a big chasm. You can't do it, across uh, it. No one can go from there to here. What's done is done. The finality of it is haunting, right? Kind of highlights the agony of this life having consequences. Your life, the way you live, what you do with it, this short breath that you have has consequences. That life isn't just a meager passageway to some grander, more beautiful thing that everyone just gets to get. Uh, what are you going to do with this life? While the setting of the parable is really Hades, its purpose is about this earthly life. Jesus is speaking to the living, not to the dead. He's speaking to us. What will you do with this? What will you do with the gifts and the treasures that you've been given? In Matthew, Jesus tells a different story, but equally haunting sort of parable about the end of days where there'll be sheep and goats and, you know, the people that he knows are, are sheep and those that he doesn't know, they're goats. And he's up there and he's just dividing people. Sheep and goats, but it's not random, it's intentional, it's purposeful. Some of the people that he separates out as goats, they cry out, and they're like, but we spoke your name. We did all these awesome stuff. We attended all the classes. We knew all the stuff. Why don't we get in? And Jesus says, I never knew you. And then to the sheep, he turns to them and he says, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Jesus is saying that the mark of, of knowing someone who understands me, that I know, the way that I know that they know me, is how they treat the invisible, how they treat the unnamed. Uh, do you want to follow Jesus into that darkness of the city? Do you want to follow him into obscurity when everything else is about gaining more and more notoriety? Do you want to relinquish your status, whatever it is? I mean, none of us are on that billionaire list, right? A few of us, our names are on the credits. But most of us have zero notoriety. Nobody knows your name. You're going to live in this city. You're going to die in this city or move somewhere else. No one's really going to know your name except for the people in this room, about 100 people you work with, right? Are you willing to relinquish that status for the sake of others? Because that is the way of Jesus. He's the one who surrendered all security, all royal garments, 
someone dressed in purple, like that's Jesus. He's that kind of king. And he relinquishes all of that to carry a cross, to raise the dead, to set captives free, to release us all from the bondage of sin and death and guilt and shame. That's what he did. And so what he's saying with the sheep and the goats and even this story is the people who understand that truth about the graciousness of God to surrender everything to bring you to life, those people don't consider their stuff this amazing deal. They understand, oh, it's so easy to give my life away. The God of the universe already gave his life to me so I can give anything away. That's the beginning of all generosity. That's why it's a mark. If you don't get that part of Jesus, then why would you sacrifice yourself for others? As I said before, the the majority of this parable is kind of borrowed and modified from this Egyptian folktale, a story that Jesus likely heard when he was a refugee in Egypt, along with these other disciples, because they're all about the same age, and boys and their families had to run to Egypt to flee, you know, genocide. And they were in Egypt, and they probably heard this kind of story. Jesus changes two things about the story. The first thing he does is he names Lazarus. And the folktale in Egypt sort of ends there with this guy saying, oh, I want to go. And the, the moral of that story is, hey, don't be like the rich man. Care for some poor people. And Jesus changes it to give a name to the poor, but then he also changes it with this, these last lines, this twist at the end, and it really becomes the whole focus of the whole story. When the rich man says, can you send Lazarus back to my brothers to tell them not to make the same mistake that I made? They should be warned. Like they don't know about, like someone should give them a warning shot. And then Abraham says, well, they have the prophets and they have Moses. They should listen to them. See, the the prophets, they proclaim the truth about who God was over and over again. Uh, The truth of the entire story. The truth of how God formed and shaped the earth. How rebellion and sin entered into the world and broke and marred everything, but how God promised, even from that moment onward, to bless the entire world through uh, Abraham, through his families, through his descendants. The prophets tell that story over and over again. Uh, You can't listen to the prophets without hearing God's heart for the poor and the broken, and really his unwavering desire to bless all of humanity with his presence. The prophets speak to his unrelenting mission just to restore everything, to reconcile all things. The prophets over and over again, it's all there. It's all in Isaiah, it's in Jeremiah, it's in Micah, it's in Jonah, page after page, it's all there. In fact, like the early Christians, you know, believe it or not, didn't have a New Testament. And they weren't like, oh man, that old old stuff, we don't need that. They actually poured it in. One commentator says that the early church kept borrowing and stealing from the the Old Testament so much, they eventually just called it the New Testament. Like, that's what they did. They just kept copying and pasting, copying and pasting until they had the New Testament. It's all there. That's what what this story is saying. And then Moses, he's the one that just told the whole beautiful story and God's desire to walk with his people through deserts, through slavery, through open seas. Like, that's the story of Moses. And what he's saying is, if your brothers don't listen to that, the voice of God from generation after generation, if they can't listen to that, then they won't listen. 
The rich man says, no, but if someone who rose from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. And Abraham says, if they will not listen to Moses, if they will not listen to the prophets, they will not listen to someone even if they've risen from the dead. If they haven't already listened, though nothing will be enough. If the scriptures don't compel you to repentance, what will compel you to repentance? I think often this story is so much about just the refusal of the cynic. Uh, the cynic who kind of puts themselves above all information and knowledge. It's a, it's a survival tactic for us. We've been sold lots of goods and we've been, re- you know, they've, found, they've been found to be wanting, you know, all sorts of great promises. Like, get this degree, you'll be happy. Take out this loan, you'll be fine. Like, we know, like, ah, oh, we've been, so- like, vote for this person, it'll be awesome. Uh, and we've just all been let down. So cynicism is our guard against that. Uh, Jesus one time was arguing with Sadducees. Sadducees were the ultimate skeptics and cynics. They were people who did all of the stuff. Like they thought, man, these religious holidays are great. Like it's good to show up four or five times a year. They even donated a lot of money to keep sort of the, the religious practices going. But they didn't believe any of it. They didn't have any hope in it. There's this time they're arguing with Jesus, and they ask Jesus this really kind of convoluted question, you know, about resurrection. If somebody's alive, and they marry someone, and then they die, and then they marry somebody else, their question is, who's married to who when they rise from the dead? And Jesus' answer to them, because he's like, this is a silly question, just for cynics. He says, do you not know the answer to this question because you haven't read the scriptures, or is it because you don't know God? That's his answer. It's really great. He's like, hey, is it because you haven't read the the story? Is it because you haven't read the prophets and Moses and you haven't read all of that? Is that why you don't know the answer to this question? Or is it because you read all of it and you still don't know the living God? And then his final statement there to them is this, I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. And Jesus goes on, obviously, to rise from the dead, putting all of that at rest. And our cynicism has to die somewhere. And if it's not going to die in the reading of the scriptures and hearing the story that's that's unfolding, there's no amount of emotion or ecstasy or lights or anything that will compel you enough to enter into the life of the living. See, the main temptation for us is to fill our lives with the activities of God or the information about God without the presence of God living with us. To have questions for God instead of to find God questioning us. Which that's what this parable is about. He's questioning all of us. What are you spending your life on? Will you repent and hear the words of God? And I think that this passage fills us tons with grief because we know the cynics. There are brothers, there are sisters, there are friends, there are neighbors who they have said and they put a line in the sand there and say nothing will be enough for me to know the living God. And we lament that and we all carry it. To be a Christian is to walk a little bit with grief knowing that there are people who will refuse. But will you be someone who refuses? The prophets did speak and Moses spoke all of these things. And someone did rise from the dead and did come to us. 
Like he says, even though like you're not going to listen, Jesus didn't say, so I'm not going to do this thing. He said, I'm still going to rise from the dead and the earth will shake and all things will tremble because reality will be forever different. Hebrews uh, 1, 1 to 3 uh, speaks to this truth so, so well. It says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Will you listen to him? And will you repent? Repentance is uh, not a really hard word to understand, but repentance is a real hard word to hear, right? Like I've said it a couple times and it fills me with like, right? It's hard to hear. Or is it easy to hear? I can't tell. It's hard to hear, right? And the stakes for your life can't be higher. Like that's what I think we like live in these doldrums as even as Matt said, we're just kind of getting through life, just kind of content, go day by day, not even thinking about this. This parable is written to shake you into understanding that big thing that hangs over your life. Will you repent? Uh, the biblical story of repentance is not really being narrowed down to some sort of private conversation you have with God. Thinks that's one of the things we've been taught about repentance. Hey, you just need to get this quiet one-on-one -on -one deal and, and that's it. Uh, repentance in the story is not really feeling really sorry for your sins or being really ready to, to make amends and to spend the money and fix the problem. The call of repentance is re to return to God and the ways of God with his people. That's the call to repentance, to return to his story and to leave all these other stories that we believe in, but to return to his story and to return to everything that his story is about and to return to everyone his story is about. It has to do with entering a whole new way of life, about taking up a membership and saying, I am a citizen of the kingdom of the living God. Jesus is calling women and men to join him in that way to join him in that kingdom. That's what repentance is about. Uh, see, a personal devotion plan, like it's not going to cut it. Like that's not repentance. Making a set of resolutions of like, from now on, I'm going to do these things. From now on, I'm going to ask every corner I'm at, I'm going to ask the dude his name. That's repentance, right? It's not about making a set of resolutions. It's not about feeling bad. It's not about sensing regret either. Because moods, I don't know if you know this, your mood can be cultivated. You know, like you can eat and drink some stuff and your mood will change. Your emotions can totally be shifted and manipulated. Repentance isn't about the mood or the, the emotions that you're feeling. Repentance is about getting into God's story. It's about hearing Jesus cry out, this is my kingdom, come and join it. This is my family, come participate in it. This is my mission of naming the unnamed. The call to repentance is kind of like when your friend calls you up and says, hey, I'm moving on Saturday, can you help me move some stuff? I think sometimes we think repentance is just saying on the phone, yeah, I'll be there, and then not being there, 
They're like, well, I said I would be there. But repentance is actually when the person calls you and says, can you come and help me move on Saturday? And then when you actually show up on Saturday to put your hands on their furniture and to move things from one place to another, that's when you've actually entered into their story. And Jesus and the life of Jesus and the whole of Scripture is about repentance, is about entering into his story, hearing the call and saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to participate in the things that Jesus participates in. And so I want to call you even right now to that kind of repentance, to the joining of his story, of deciding today that you will participate in it tomorrow and this whole week, right? Uh, So let's take uh, a few minutes, uh, even before you go and take communion. Uh, We can take three minutes. It's a special three. And I want you to be thinking, because when you go and take communion, I want you to share, like, this is actually how I want to participate in his story. Like, this is what I'm going to leave behind, and this is what I'm going to pursue instead. Because communion, the gospel feast, is a feast of repentance. Uh, And so uh, that's what we'll do. So you'll think about it. Then when you go and take communion with others, uh, you'll be able to share with them how you're walking towards Jesus instead of away from him. Jesus, uh, we ask you to speak to us, to convict our hearts, uh, that we wouldn't uh, just walk in a, in a mood change uh, or, or a list of plans that we've made, but that we would walk in step with your story, that we would surrender our lives to your story. Uh, Jesus, thank you for naming us, writing us on the book of life. May that kindness lead us to repentance. Jesus, we thank you for speaking to us. Now as we go in communion, we just want to celebrate you and celebrate the kindness that you've shown us uh, as we participate in your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.